This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This here is episode 162, entitled Mark's High Human Christology, chapters 1 through 2. Yes, we are going to begin going through the New Testament Gospels to see the type of Christology that they portray. I believe that the Gospel of Mark offers a high human Christology. There are a lot of people that discuss Christology when it comes to the Gospels. Some people will say Mark has a low Christology and that the later Gospels, John especially, but perhaps Matthew and Luke have a high Christology. Some people even use different terminology. They will say that Mark has a human Christology or John has a divine Christology, even though we're not exactly sure what divine Christology actually means. It's not a word that is something that everyone understands and shares the same definition. So there's a lot of terminology that's being used back and forth, and I'm the kind of person that I like it when we are precise, when we are clear, when we can pinpoint exactly what is being said, and we can avoid the confusion, we can avoid the ambiguity, we can avoid muddying the waters. Now when it comes to person's Christology, there is a tendency that I've noted to cite verses that support one's own position, but we regularly shy away from other passages, passages that we think are abused, passages that we think might go against our own particular view. Now, no Christology is complete without taking into account all of the evidence. So if we're going to look at Mark's Gospel, for example, we have to look at all of the things that are said about Jesus and Jesus' relationship with God within the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't do us good to only proof text the verses that we think support our view and not talk about the verses that don't support our view. This is actually a problem that all sides of the debate tend to fall into. So, in this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at the most exalted things said of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark in order to become more comfortable with them. We aren't going to the easy text, the commonly used proof text to support our own position. No. We will deliberately go out of our way to find the most difficult passages, the passages that speak of Jesus in the most exalted terms, the passages that might be the go-to proof text for the other position. And our hope is to honestly assess all of the evidence and eventually come up with a comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is without ignoring evidence that makes us feel uncomfortable. So the goal here is to make us more comfortable 
with the difficult passages, the passages that are commonly used by the other side of the debate. If the truth has nothing to hide, then we need to stop hiding from the truth. What sort of Christology will be found in the Gospel of Mark? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the agent of God prepared by John. I'm going to read the first nine verses in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Okay, we got this opening passage here in the Gospel of Mark, and we can see that there is an opening statement about who Jesus is. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Son of God. What is Son of God? That is a title for Israel's anointed messianic king. This person is always a human being within the Hebrew Bible. It is always someone who is distinct from Yahweh. And yet he is someone that is authorized by Yahweh to exercise royal prerogatives. So Jesus is an agent figure already off the bat in chapter 1 and verse 1. Someone distinct from God, but yet someone who is very important. He is the Son of God. He is the Messianic King. And then we see a combined citation, combining Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. And this is one of those passages that is often confusing to readers, but it is portrayed by some to suggest that Jesus actually is Yahweh. But when we read this passage carefully, and we note how Mark uses the pronouns of the persons about whom he is referring, we can see pretty clearly that there are three persons involved. In this passage, we have someone speaking in the first person, I. We note that that person is going to send my messenger, and that messenger will go ahead of you. 
So we have I, my messenger, and you. That seems to be three distinct persons in this combined citation from the Hebrew Bible. Who is that first person singular? That's I, that's Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking. He says that he's going to send my messenger, that seems to be John the Baptist, and that messenger is going ahead of you, someone distinct from the speaker, someone distinct from Yahweh. It seems pretty clear that that you is the Son of God, that is Jesus. That person is the one who will prepare your way, that's John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So we have the messenger crying in the wilderness. And then what do we see in verse 4? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance. So there's no question in regard to the person who is the messenger bearing the voice crying in the wilderness. That is explicitly defined as John the Baptist. And that messenger goes ahead of you. That, of course, is in reference to Jesus. So we can see that Yahweh has sent John. That means that John functions as an agent, someone who is authorized, someone who acts under the authority of God. And as this authorized agent of God, John is someone who preaches a baptism that brings about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Nobody here seems to question whether John has the authority to do so. In fact, he gets a pretty large turnout of people that seem to think that he is correctly authorized to bring about the forgiveness of sins and to perform these baptisms in conjunction with personal repentance. Of course, John is doing so in a way that prepares the way for Jesus, and we're going to see how he prepares the way for Jesus. As John is speaking and preaching, he speaks about another person whom he regards as higher in rank than John is. So we've got John here, who is an authorized prophet, and he speaks of someone who is greater than him, but we know that this third person is someone who is distinct from Yahweh. Well, who could that person be? Well, we know that chapter 1, verse 1 defines Jesus as the Son of God, that is the Messianic King. And we can see that Jesus shows up. He gets baptized by John. So of course, John has prepared the way for that. And we know in the passage that at the baptism of Jesus, God speaks from heaven. The Spirit comes out like a dove, and it anoints Jesus. It authorizes Jesus, and it empowers Jesus, and the voice from heaven clearly regards Jesus as the Son of God, which is exactly what we came to expect with the opening verse. So Jesus appears, he gets baptized, and our guess of who he is, the person who is higher in rank than John, is confirmed with the voice from heaven that declares that Jesus is the Son of God newly empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus do with this new authorization, this Spirit-enabled authority that came directly from God? Well, let's find out. Let's move to our second point, which is looking specifically at 
Jesus's authority. As we continue in Mark's Gospel in the first chapter, let's look at a handful of verses starting in verse 21. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. So we've got Jesus here with a new teaching, and he is someone who has authority. The passage began by saying that he was teaching them with authority, and it ended with people claiming that he has a new teaching with authority. This Son of God figure, who was given the Spirit at his baptism, bears an authority directly from God that many people here openly recognize and admit. This authority, which privileges this human agent of God, is actually going to be a recurring theme in the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark starts to build this theme up very early on. In the very first chapter, we can see that Jesus teaches with authority, and this is recognized by the people. Jesus performs exorcisms with authority. This is recognized by the people. And Jesus summons to obedience with his authority. And this is recognized by the unclean spirits and by the people. So the way in which Mark portrays Jesus as an authorized individual is multivalent. Let's move on a little bit in our passage to the beginning of chapter 2, where we have a controversy story involving Jesus and, you guessed it, the authority that he bears. Mark chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. That's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the first controversy story involving Jesus. Prior to this, people seem to accept what Jesus is doing. They seem to even acknowledge that he bears authority. But this is the passage that questions that authority. And it raises the question about the one bearing the authority and the one who gave that authority to him. So both Jesus and God are concerned in this passage. Jesus acts as the authorized Son of God throughout the Gospel of Mark, but his exploits within the first chapter have gained a lot of attention, and so people gather to him while he is at home in Capernaum. We can see that a paralyzed man is brought to him, and Jesus forgives this paralyzed man's sins. He is now questioned by those who are recognized for their authority, specifically the scribes. Now, this is the first time that the scribes seem to appear in the presence of Jesus. They don't seem to be present for the previous demonstrations of Jesus' authority in chapter 1, where Jesus teaches with authority, he performs exorcisms with authority, and he calls to obedience with authority. In that passage, he is contrasted with the authority of the scribes, but now the scribes are present. So Jesus demonstrates his ability to know what the scribes are thinking, which, let's be honest, that's an extraordinary feat for a human being. But it's not actually unheard of for someone who is a prophetic figure. God gives insights to his human prophets all the time. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 10, this is the most important part of this particular passage. When the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy, because Jesus seems to be doing something that only God can do, namely, to forgive sins. Jesus responds by saying that he is the Son of Man, which is the title for an important human being. And as the Son of Man, Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, he's not just referring to any old Son of Man, as if it's just another way of talking about a mortal person or just a human being. He's referring to the Son of Man that he expects his listeners to recognize. This, of course, is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a vision of the Ancient of Days and a human figure, a Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, To him, to the Son of Man, was given by the Ancient of Days dominion, authority, 
and kingship. The Ancient of Days gives to this human son of man dominion, authority, and kingship. So that's God's dominion, which is given to this human being. God's authority is given to this human being. And God's kingship is given to this human being. But we have that important word there, the word authority. God gave authority to the human son of man. And Jesus here claims to be the son of man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus already demonstrated the fact that he has authority. In fact, the crowds have openly admitted that Jesus has authority. And Mark has already led us to believe that Jesus has been authorized and empowered by God because God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, acknowledged publicly that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is thus empowered with God's authority and specifically God's prerogative to forgive sins. So when Jesus is questioned about the ability to forgive sins and he is accused of blasphemy, Jesus responds by saying that he is the Son of Man bearing authority. Jesus does not claim to be Yahweh. He does not claim to be the God of Israel. He does not say that I can forgive sins, which is something that only God can do, meaning that I am God. He claims to be a human being whom God has rightly shared the prerogative of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus forgives sins as a member of the human race, as a human being. Let's move to our third and final point for the day, Jesus as the new groom. We'll be talking about the marriage metaphor here, and let's look at this passage it's only three verses, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. It's Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. So like the previous episode, the actions of Jesus are being brought into question. And within this passage and the verses that follow, Jesus responds to the question of why his disciples are not fasting with a few examples. But the one that we're quoting here is the one that offers a Christological answer. Jesus here claims to be the groom. And he speaks about his setting as a setting of a wedding. His disciples seem to be the attendants of the groom. And so if the setting is a wedding, then this calls for celebration. This calls for rejoicing. This is not a time for fasting and mourning. However, it's important for us to know that the groom, within the metaphor of the covenant marriage relationship within Jewish theology, is a figure that is used of none other than Yahweh himself. 
Yes, in the Old Testament, the groom, within the metaphor of the covenant, is specifically Yahweh. So is this a passage to where Jesus is subtly claiming to be one and the same as Yahweh? I just want to show you a passage from the Hebrew Bible where Yahweh is the groom. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the groom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's Isaiah 62, verse 5, to where the groom rejoicing over the bride is defined as God rejoicing over the sons of Israel, over the Jewish people. So clearly the groom there is God, and Jesus here is claiming to be the groom. What is going on here, Jesus? Are you telling us that you are claiming to be Yahweh from the Old Testament? However, I do think the narrative thus far has really done a lot to present Jesus as the human being who is highly authorized by God. In fact, this man rightly bears the prerogative to forgive sins. So just because Jesus is doing things and sounding like God, it doesn't mean that he is God, because Jesus has already declared that he is someone who bears the prerogatives from God to forgive sins. He bears the authority from God to do all sorts of mighty works and acts. So I don't think that Mark would want his readers to simply equate Jesus with Yahweh. It actually seems more consistent to see Jesus, a man who bears the authority of God, to be here bearing the authority as the covenantal groom. If God can share the prerogative to forgive sins with a special human agent, then certainly God can share the prerogative as the groom within the covenant with an authorized human being. And this reading, of course, requires us to situate this within the unfolding narrative of Mark that we have seen in the first two chapters. You're not going to be able to draw this conclusion if you just pluck this passage out of its context, if you just cherry-pick it, and you ignore everything that's been said up to this particular point. You would just make the observation that Jesus claims to be the groom, the groom in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and you could conclude with some understanding that Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. But there's more to it than that. The passage and the context indicates that Jesus is someone who is authorized by God and someone who has already demonstrated to be a human being bearing divine prerogatives. But Jesus also gives this illusion of a time coming when the groom will be taken away. And this wording of being taken away is what scholars in Greek call the divine passive. And it's what happens when God does something, but they speak of it in the passive voice. So it would indicate that God is going to take Jesus away. And the taking away seems to be a subtle reference to Jesus' death. It's interesting that Jesus here doesn't outright say that the Son of God is going to die. That's something that is going to be revealed later ultimately, in chapter 8. But Jesus is kind of hinting at it. He's alluding to it, but he's not coming out 
and saying it in a forthright manner. And Jesus' death is, of course, something that happens to all human beings. Every single human being dies because human beings are mortal. But God, specifically Yahweh, he can't die. God is immortal. God is incapable of dying. So we have here this sort of balance that we need to maintain, that Jesus seems to be claiming a title, or at least claiming a privilege, that clearly belonged to Yahweh alone in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus claims to be someone who is distinct from the God that is going to take him away, and Jesus is, of course, alluding to his own death. So it seems that the best conclusion, based on placing this episode within the narrative thus far of Jesus being an authorized human being, is to conclude that Jesus is authorized to exercise divine prerogatives, particularly the prerogative of the groom within the Jewish metaphor of covenant marriage. And Jesus looks forward to his own death, which is expected of human beings, and he's going to be taken away by God. So Jesus makes that distinction between himself and God pretty clear. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Jesus Christ is the central figure in the Gospel of Mark, our earliest narrative account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Much attention is given in Mark towards Christology, that is, towards the person of Jesus, what he is up to, and how he relates to the God of Israel. We first noted that the Gospel of Mark opens with the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the title for the anointed Messianic King. We also saw that a catena of quotations from the Hebrew Bible position Jesus in a unique relationship with Yahweh and John the Baptist. Yahweh commissioned John to prepare the way for Jesus. And Mark is clear in his use of pronouns to keep these persons differentiated. John functions as an authorized prophetic figure, while regarding Jesus as one who ranks higher than he is. John baptizes Jesus, and Jesus' identity as the Son of God is confirmed, when Jesus is anointed by God's Spirit, and this, of course, prepares him for his highly authorized ministry. Second, we observe that Jesus wastes no time exercising his Spirit-empowered authority. Jesus teaches with authority, he performs exorcisms with authority, and he even commands obedience with authority. The narrative is clear that Jesus possesses this authority because God gave it to him. We also see a controversy story where Jesus forgives sins of a paralyzed man and heals him. When questioned about the prerogative to forgive sins, Jesus responds by stating that he is the Son of Man, which is the authorized human being on earth. Lastly, we noted that the highly authorized human Jesus not only bears the prerogative to forgive sins, but he also exercises the prerogative of the covenantal groom. 
Jesus refers to himself as the groom who celebrates with his disciples in the present, but he looks forward to a time when he will be taken away, likely by God, in the death of Jesus. This appears to portray Jesus as one authorized with God's prerogative while remaining mortal and distinct from God. So we're only two chapters into Mark, but the conclusion thus far is that Jesus is the highly authorized human Son of God, who does things that God can do because God has shared his prerogatives with this unique human agent. This is what we could appropriately call a high human Christology. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please look forward to our next episode where we continue through the Gospel of Mark to see what sort of person Jesus claims to be. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these important truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation or a tip, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Be sure to check us out on YouTube, just YouTube Biblical Unitarian Podcast, and you'll find some interesting videos. And I also want to give a shout out to another podcast put on by Biblical Unitarians called the Bible Feed Podcast. It's more of a conversational approach to biblical topics, but it's something that I think that is very likely you will enjoy. I want to give a special thanks to Dustin Williams, who is our producer and editor. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.